Good morning and welcome to Northminster. Thank you for joining with us today. With each week that passes by, so much changes in our world, but we are grateful for the gift of still being able to gather with you, with one another, week after week, to remind ourselves of the power of community and of this shared story that grounds us in hope. Today is the seventh Sunday of Eastertide, the season where we continue to train our eyes to see patterns of death and resurrection around us. But it's also the last Sunday in Eastertide. Today we celebrate Ascension Sunday. It's the day where we spend time with the story of Jesus' ascension before moving into the season of Pentecost, which starts next week. About Ascension Sunday, Father Richard Rohr writes, In the story of Christ's ascension, angels appear next to the disciples as they gaze after the rising figure. The angels ask, why are you standing here staring up into heaven? And most of Christianity has been doing just that ever since, straining to find Jesus up there. Where did he go, we ask? How can we ascend to heaven with him? But even though the historical Jesus is no longer with us, the whole point of the incarnation and the risen body is that Christ is here and always was. And now we have a story that allows us to imagine that it just might be true. And now let me offer these words of blessing over our time together. That we might stand together, that we might make note of the longing in our hearts, that we might remember to breathe, that we might hold one another up, that we might turn our gaze toward one another, that we might see the kingdom here before our eyes. Over the past few weeks, we have been prayerfully addressing some of the most common questions that have come up for people in the midst of this pandemic. Using research on the science of well-being combined with the wisdom from our own faith tradition, it's our hope to ease some of the emotional and spiritual pain that has surfaced in this season. This week, we spend time with the question, how do I foster well-being if I'm feeling lonely? I heard an interview recently with the 19th U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, in which he pointed out that loneliness is an incredibly subjective thing to measure. It describes the disparity between how much social interaction you need and how much you actually get. And that baseline level of need is different for everybody. And that's why you could be sheltering in place alone or with your whole family, but still feel lonely. That's completely normal. And ironically, you're not alone in that. Let me also say that if you're locked down with kids, 
They might not know how to express it, but they might be experiencing similar feelings of loneliness. And much or some of what we're about to walk through could also be beneficial to them if they're open to trying it. So the first thing the research says is that you can be physically alone without having to be socially alone. Dr. Lori Santos of Yale University says that intentionally connecting in real time online over Zoom or FaceTime or Skype or something like that can actually be almost as effective as face-to-face -face interaction. And that means things like Zoom yoga, or Zoom game night, or Zoom dinner with friends, or Zoom choir, or Zoom Sunday school, they might actually help. It might be odd at first, and I know they sound strange, but you'd be surprised at how quickly something can become the new normal. But while it is so important to our well-being to connect with others, it's also very tempting to confuse that need with the drive to distract ourselves with others, to distract ourselves from how we're doing and feelings that we might need to process. As important as it is to connect, it's also important to learn to sit with ourselves, to embrace the silence and the solitude. There's a rhythm to it, to moving back and forth between the two, and too much of one at the expense of the other is never a good thing. But this challenge might be an opportunity to better learn that rhythm and lean into it. In our liturgy, we often use Nancy Merrill's paraphrases of the Psalms, and one of her favorite titles for God is the constant companioning presence who we meet in the silence. The companioning presence. This challenge is an opportunity to discover like the mothers and fathers of our faith that sought out solitude in the desert, that we too can discover the Holy Spirit of life that resides at our core. It's an opportunity to get in touch with that which connects us to all other life. And remember that we are one expression, one member of the great body of Christ. It's an opportunity to bring awareness to that innate connection we have with all other expressions of life an awareness that cradles and speaks softly to our fears, especially the fear that we are alone. So, as our prayer practice this week, I would like us to pray through Blessing for Dining Alone by Jan Richardson from her collection, The Cure for Sorrow. I'll read it once, give us a moment to take a breath, and then I'll read it once more. So let's take a breath to get prepared. Blessing for dining alone. I know of hardly any place we will find ourselves more haunted than here. Here, where it is hard to say grace. Here, where the absence attends us with such intimacy. Here, where the emptiness enters every morsel and bitterness flavors every bite. Here, where we know how aloneness becomes its own ritual, the unchosen practice that alters us, hollows us, consumes us. So here, of all places, may there be a sweetness 
that comes to you for the savoring. Here may you know yourself seen and remembered. Here may you know the table inhabited by the persistent presence that comes with a stunning plenty. Here may you know that blessing that abides in the breaking, the Eucharist that echoes still, the communion that does not end. May it be here at the table that you know at last how emptiness becomes an altar, how solitude becomes a sanctuary, where we, with deepest hunger, say our fervent, hopeful grace. Once more, blessing for dining alone. I know of hardly any place we will find ourselves more haunted than here. Here, where it is hard to say grace. Here, where the absence attends us with such intimacy. Here, where the emptiness enters every morsel and bitterness flavors every bite. Here, where we know how aloneness becomes its own ritual, the unchosen practice that alters us, hollows us, consumes us. So here, of all places, may there be a sweetness that comes to you for the savoring. Here, may you know yourself seen and remembered. Here, may you know the table inhabited by the persistent presence that comes with a stunning plenty. Here, may you know the blessing that abides in the breaking, the Eucharist that echoes still, the communion that doesn't end. May it be here, at the table, that you know at last how emptiness becomes an altar, how solitude becomes a sanctuary where we, with deepest hunger, say our fervent, hopeful grace. Amen.
A reading from the book of Acts. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Moses had lived a long and full life. He had made difficult choices. He had drawn closer than anyone to what was really real. He had liberated his people and led them through their wandering until finally they had made it here to the brink of the promised land. And now here at the end, he stood on the mountaintop overlooking the land that lay waiting for them. He felt as if he could see the future that lay before his people with his own two eyes. And it was a future as textured and complex as the landscape before him, a future of mountainous highs on either side of the depths of the Valley of Fear. God would be with them and Moses had no fear. He knew his time had come. If there was one thing he had learned coming face to face with the divine, it was this. The story would not end when he did. And when he had breathed his last, they say it was God's own hand that buried his bones in the ground the final resting place of the great leader who brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, a secret that God alone knows. And so, in some ways, it's as if he is still in our midst. Centuries later, Elijah walked along the riverbank with his apprentice, imparting a few last words of wisdom. He had a feeling that his work here had been accomplished, that his time was drawing near. 
His apprentice, Elisha, made one last request, asking for a guarantee that the spirit that had animated Elijah would live on in his own ministry, that he would be truly a son of Elijah. The great prophet knew enough to know this wasn't a guarantee he could offer because so much depended on the choices his young apprentice would make himself. But Elijah was not troubled by not knowing what would become of his legacy because if there was one thing he had learned in coming so close to the divine, it was this. The story would not end when he did. And when his time had come, they say he was whisked away, gone in an instant, not dead even, just gone, carried away on something like a chariot, ablaze with the glory of the God he had served. And so, in some ways, it's as if he is still in our midst. And then there's Jesus, not just coming back from the grave, but coming back never to enter it again. Here in the first chapter of Acts, 40 days after that fateful Easter morning, we find Jesus on a mountaintop, the new Moses, approaching the end of his time on earth, gazing out on the future of his people, of all people, with hope. We find Jesus, the new Elijah, imparting a few last words of wisdom to those who would carry on his legacy and disappearing in just as mysterious a fashion. One might begin to think the people of God have some kind of fear of death, the way they go so far out of their way to tell the stories of their heroes as stories of people who never really died certainly doesn't make for a do-as-I-do kind of faith. But in holding these stories up next to each other, which is something the Gospels invite us to do when they tell the earlier story of Jesus' transfiguration on a mountaintop, joined by who else but Moses and Elijah, when we hold these stories up next to each other, it does seem that a theme emerges. After all, Jesus ascends, and yet, in some way, in so many ways, he too is still in our midst. These stories of biblical heroes discovering and helping us discover that the story God is telling is not one that could ever end with the death of any leader, that this isn't a story that gives death the last word. They're stories that provide anchor points in scripture for this central line of truth that we hear from the lips of Jesus himself, this truth that the kingdom is here in our midst. Let me paint you the whole picture. In the Gospel of Luke, written by the same author as the story of the Ascension we read today, there comes a passage toward the end of Jesus' ministry when he speaks in parables about the kingdom of God. 
it's like a mustard seed, he says. You plant the tiniest seed and up comes not just the mustard bush you'd expect, but a tree so full of life and generous of shade that birds make their nests in it and the people find rest at its base. That's what the kingdom is like. Or in another way, he goes on, it's like the smallest measure of yeast. You drop in just a pinch and then watch as it causes the whole ball of dough to rise. That's what the kingdom is like. The conversation goes on for a while and then the Pharisees step up with a question. They want to know when this reign of God will begin. Or more likely, they want to get Jesus on record proclaiming a date so they can use it later to discredit him. But you're missing the point, Jesus tells them. The reign of God doesn't come in a visible way. You can't say, see, here it is, or there it is. No. Look, he says, gesturing to the open space between them. The reign of God is already here in your midst. It's the same lesson the forefather Jacob learned when he had just started out on the journey that would lead him to become father of the 12 tribes of Israel, in need of a safe place to rest, in fear of retribution from those who wished him harm, running away from the only home he had ever known God to inhabit. He fell asleep and dreamed of angels and a ladder and became acquainted with this truth, that God cannot be contained. And so he proclaimed, surely God is in the midst of this place, and I did not know it. It's the same lesson the tribes of Israel would learn through difficulty and sorrow when centuries later they were carried off into exile, leaving behind them the temple, the only place they had ever known God to inhabit. With the full expanse of a desert between their new home and the one they had made for God, the nation of Israel in exile learned to settle in and to come to terms with the truth that somehow God was still in the midst of them. The death of their nation hadn't been the last word. There was life to be had here, too. It's the same lesson Jesus taught over and over in word and deed throughout his ministry, proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom of God, giving himself fully to that truth in his willingness to love beyond respectable boundaries, and then even to die. For he too, like Moses, like Elijah, knew in his bones that this story would not end with his death. And when it didn't, when he didn't even end with his death, but his days on earth were coming to a close, he gathered his disciples to him. He gave them a few last words, and as they looked on, he rose for a second time, 
and this time disappeared before their eyes. They stood there together, staring into the heavens. And suddenly, two passers-by walked up behind them, shielding their eyes, trying to catch what it was everyone was looking at. Only they weren't just passing through. They were messengers of the God who can't be contained. And they came to ask a simple question. What are y'all doing? Why are you looking at the sky? It's a question that ought to ring in our ears every time we find ourselves waiting on God to intervene. Why spend your time gazing into the clouds when, in truth, Jesus and the kingdom he proclaimed are both right here, as close as your next breath, as real as your next-door neighbor? Why on earth are you looking at the sky? Friends, what is it you're looking for from God? Is it a physical need you long to have met? Or is your spirit uneasy in this season? Whatever your longing leads you to pray for, I'm not saying don't pray about it, but be vigilant, lest you wind up cloud-gazing. You can look to the skies, friends, but the clouds will keep rolling by, for the kingdom of God is in our midst. It's all around us. In the love that we share, in the justice that we seek, in the mercy we show to one another and to ourselves. The kingdom of God is within us. Alleluia, alleluia, amen.
Around this table, we tell the story of the night when Jesus took the bread, gave thanks for it, and broke it, just as he would be broken. Around this table, we tell the story of the night when Jesus gave it to his friends and said, take and eat, all of you. Do this in remembrance of me. Around this table, we tell the story, remembering his suffering, remembering his resurrection, remembering that neither pain nor death have the last word. Around this table, we tell the story of the night when Jesus took the wine and gave thanks for it and poured it out just as he would be poured out. Around this table, we tell the story of the night when Jesus gave it to his friends, even those who would betray him and said, take and drink, all of you. Do this in remembrance of me. Around this table, we tell the story, remembering his new promise, remembering his grace, remembering that the spirit of love is with us no matter what. Breaking bread and pouring wine, may we be sustained by love and embraced by grace. Amen.
We're so glad that you've joined us today. We hope that in our time together, we have been opened in some way to God's presence so that we can go forth in the likeness of Christ. We have just a couple of quick announcements before we disperse. Thank you to all who were able to attend the story listening session last week. That was a helpful springboard into these next few weeks as we figure out what it means to settle in and plant gardens in this season. This Sunday, the Coordinating Council will meet to translate some of what we heard into a guiding narrative and mission. And then we're asking every commission to find a time to meet using Zoom over the next two weeks to talk about what this means for them, the work they can do, and what they can equip others to do in this season of dispersion. Also, remember, as always, to check the newsletter for more information about what's going on in the life of the church, and don't forget to give. We are continuing to pay our choral scholars, childcare workers, and staff, so your contributions are greatly appreciated. Now, as we disperse to find ourselves living and enacting the Ascension story, when we stand, may we stand together. May our longing sink down deep into our hearts. When we need grounding, may we remember to breathe. When one of us falters, may we hold one another up. And when the clouds have passed, may we turn our gaze toward one another, that at last we might see the kingdom here before our eyes. You are seen you are loved. Go in peace. Amen.